really trusting your data and really understanding how to analyze data and, and understanding that you can get to the root cause of a lot of these issues if you focus solely on that. And that's all charge drill. All the thing we do is fix charging stations. And if you can't trust us to fix your charging station, if that's all that we're doing, we have a larger problem, right? Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Camille Carey, co-founder and CEO of ChargerHelp. ChargerHelp is the only EV charger dedicated operations and maintenance service provider in the U.S. with over 1,000 EV technicians trained so far. Their key offering is Reliability as a Service, or RAS, R-A-A-S for short. They describe RAS as a labor subscription service that provides peace of mind to charging station owners and generators who require fast and reliable O&M services at consistent hassle-free prices with 97% EV charger uptime. Camille is a former banker, policy fellow, and EV charging software executive. She's also the daughter of Belizean immigrants born and raised in South Central Los Angeles, and she believes that an equitable green economy can be achieved through realignment of existing workforces in conjunction with clean technology. Camille is also a member of our climate CEO peer group at Entrepreneurs for Impact. In this episode, we talked about their new partnership with SAE International to create the first standardized ED charging technician program, the benefits of betting on American consumerism to choose new products that delight them, such as EVs, how they will leverage the largest data set nationally, that is theirs, for EV charging operations, why she's a member of the 5 a.m. club, and how it affects her mornings, how we miss out on solutions when we don't include all people, insights from one of her favorite books called Paradise Built in Hell. I assure you it's much more uplifting than the title may suggest. And a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy it, and please give Camille and Charger Help a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. Camille Terry, co-founder and CEO of Charger Help. Welcome finally to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. <laughs> well, we, we, we're smiling big for those just listening, of course, on audio. We tried this maybe 18 or 24 months ago, right as you were joining our CEO community. Uh, anyway, long time, but, um, but lots to talk about in the world of, of EVs. Let's start with the ambitions from the Biden administration aiming for 500,000 EV chargers in the U.S. by 2030, which I think is 3x what we have today. Explain what that means. How how achievable is that? And we'll get to why that's great, but also 
what your business does is as important to making that number meaningful. But how would you kind of elaborate or or kind of expand on uh, that ambition? Yeah, I think because I'm a storyteller. Sure. So when I first started out in this industry, I think there was probably about two or three electric vehicles. And most of them were like turquoise or weird colors. And people just weren't, wasn't that excited about driving electric. There wasn't anything cool about driving electric, at least for just you know, what I call the regular, regular folks. You know, fast forward to just last year, you have almost every car manufacturer with fleets of electric vehicles. And you have new folks coming into this space with like electric vehicles and not just any electric vehicles, full electric vehicles. And so when I think about, you know, the Biden-Harris, about the administration's goals, to me, they feel attainable because one thing that you can bet on is the consumer. And one thing you can bet on is Americans like to spend money and we enjoy spending money on things that make us happy, that delight us, that brings, you know, value to our overday lives. And I think that the products that we're starting to see, at least on the electric vehicle side, has finally caught up and there's we're seeing car OEMs commit to a better experience. And because of that, because I believe in the consumer, I think that those goals can be attainable because people are going to be excited about the new types of experiences they get to have with the vehicles that are coming out on the road. Agree with all that. You know, having been in, you know, whatever, sustainability, climate, green real estate for a long time, it's like, you know, we can't just have environmental features and sacrifice all the other things, right? Quality, aesthetics, performance that uh, the customers, mainstream customers have to have. That target of half a million, maybe clarify, is that, I guess that's public chargers most likely, is that right? Yes. So for the half a million charging stations, those are public infrastructure. And I think that that is attainable because you're going to see the demand from the folks who are buying electric vehicles, right? And not everyone will have home charging. Um, not everyone will want to have home charging or be able to have home charging. So having access to public infrastructure is really, really important. It's going to be hard, right? I think sometimes we forget within the tech industry is that building actual infrastructure and building actual things takes time, right? It is not a line of code. <laughs> and so I think that it will be hard, but this industry is not a new industry. We've been building charging infrastructure for a long time. You have a lot of folks that have been in this industry that knows how to do it at an expedited fashion and have had a lot of the trials and tribulations, specifically through the Electrify America you know, program where we had to deploy a lot of infrastructure very quickly as industry. So yes, it's going to be all public. I think that it is attainable and I think that it's necessary because of the car OEM's commitment right, to electric vehicles. Okay, so... 500,000 sounds like a lot. It sounds attainable based on your your kind of deep uh, sector expertise, et cetera. Uh, but dot, 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 there are two parallel things here. One is the big picture headline. The other is, why does Charger Help exist? So let's let's go tell that story. And I, I think uh, I was reading somewhere that maybe it's a UC Berkeley study. L- lots of studies out there talking about the percent of public charging stations that aren't working at any given time. I think I saw 25%, but tell, tell us how how high can that percentage be? Is it getting any better? And let's launch into Charger Help, your old solution. Yeah, and the place actually, the I, you know, I've been moving to 
start from with this problem is that when you deploy, this is our first time ever deploying IoT assets. So a charging station is a computer. Electric vehicles is more computer than anything else, right? It's computers and batteries. And because we've never done this before, we have not prepared a workforce for this. We have not prepared our services departments for this type of technology. And then solving software issues and software interoperability issues takes a different type of skill set. And so, yes, there has been problems within the industry. But I think the way that we're, we've been approaching, you know, how we position Charger Help is to say that when you have new technology that you're deploying and you're deploying it at the rate in which we must deploy, right, in order to reach our greenhouse gas emission goals, you have to have equally smart service providers and equally smart technology in order to ensure that that deployment is efficient and working and sustainable. And that's where Charge Out comes in. We are in the business of ensuring that when you put something into the ground and when you put half a million of, of some things into the ground, that that experience is seamless, no matter the network provider, no matter where it's deployed at, no matter the hardware manufactured, that it is a seamless experience. So that way the consumer can continue to trust, right, this very expensive asset that we've deployed. So maybe let's go a little deeper into what causes downtime with these EV chargers. You mentioned interoperability, but maybe elaborate on the various causes. What's most significant in, in having these things be down? Sure. So like I was stating you know, earlier, charging stations are computers. And the way that a charging station works is that it has to essentially exchange information with other softwares. So for a charging station to know that a car is connected to it, it's exchanging information through the connector, through the computer in that car, right? For a charging station to know that there is a payment that is being processed, it's exchanging information through the credit card reader. And then for all that to happen, right, the charging station is utilizing telecom in order to ensure that data and that information is going through the cloud. All of those different, what we call handshakes or, or, or data exchanges is typically between different companies. And what has been very interesting is that when these problems arise or one company doesn't understand what another company is trying to do in that data exchange, that charging station would not work. And it's really hard sometimes to identify whose fault was it? Was there something wrong with the car? Something wrong with the connector? Something wrong with the charging station? Is there something wrong with the cell phone quality? Like, it's very hard to identify whose fault is it? And so I think that is like the biggest problem that we see with the deployment of charging infrastructure in the U.S. is that it is multiple different companies trying to exchange information. And when a problem does arise, it's not easy to identify where that problem resides, and then subsequently, what should be the steps in order to resolve that problem? So let's go to Charger Help. So maybe explain how you all are helping to maybe distinguish who's at fault and therefore, and the, I think therefore, what, what is the solution? Sure. So today when a charging station, you know, experiences an issue, someone may call out a field service technician. When that field service technician gets on site, they may have a statement of work that says, call this phone number. They will call a phone number to get help. Sometimes they sit on hold for two hours, three hours. And then sometimes the fix might be the cycle of the breaker. And sometimes that station may go down again and they have to go out there again and do another two to three hours of waiting on the phone, talking, troubleshoot. And then sometimes in a month or so, that station will have that issue again. But guess what? 
that Sidehills no longer has money to pay for that field service technician to go outside and troubleshoot. And it's just weird that this station continues to have issues. At Charger Hill, what we do is when we go out on site, well, we've built out our own field service application. And so when we go out on site, we track what were the steps that we did in order to solve this issue and how was the station behaving? And so we're collecting data from how the station itself behaved, how the payment systems behaved, what was the cell phone quality? And then we're aggregating those steps that we've taken to resolve. And we create these really beautiful patterns that we can start seeing, oh, when this station behaves in this way, these are the steps you need to take. And in fact, you might not even need to send anyone out. There might actually be an over-the-air solution here. And so we do that in a very mass way. Today, we've did over, I believe we're almost at 19,000 field service interactions just within a year and a half or so. So we have the largest data set of troubleshooting steps that we've had to do when we've gone out to fix charging infrastructure. And so why this is important is because we believe as you deploy more charging infrastructure, you will experience more problems. But the more and more that you learn, you better understand how these stages actually work in the field. And you also better understand where the problems actually rely. And then you start getting smarter at how to actually build software that can then fix those problems faster and identify where the problems existed in the first place. Got it. You mentioned in there the uh, the largest data set, I presume, of maybe the source and solution around EV chargers. What do you all do with that? It, can it become a, a you know, kind of a, a product in and of itself so that other companies can maybe license it to create their own solutions? Or how does that, how does it work kind of? Kind of just within your all's walls versus the broader ecosystem? Yes, we're very excited to be working on a couple of pilots with different partners at this time where we're looking at one is data validation. So if a charge management system says that a station is online and operable, how do you validate that without sending someone on site? Are there other things that you know about that station or how it's behaving in order to ensure that that station is actually operating as intended? Some of the other products that we're currently working on is actually predictive analytics. So being able to predict when an issue may occur, even down to some of the hardware components. With some hardware components, we can identify when they'll fail months, months before it actually fails, right? And it starts to even get better at what parts are, are, are more sustainable in the field than others. So there's a, several pilots we're doing this year to better understand what we can do with that data set. And I think the last one that has been helpful to for folks is that we've been able to offer guarantees at uptime. We've been able to create these um, breakage models. So based off the software hardware makeup and what station is located, I can tell you how often they may experience issues, what those issues are, and then what we could guarantee in regards to an uptime. And how about who are your customers? I'm sure there's a there's a number of different personas or use cases, right? So our two largest customers today are utilities. So a lot of utilities early on invested in infrastructure. They also bought software and hardware from multiple different manufacturers and network providers. And so when they're asked to produce uptime reporting, it's very difficult for them to do that across multiple manufacturers and network providers. And so we're able to provide them a synchronized way to understand what is the true uptime of their infrastructure and also what is the cost of them having this deployed asset. And then our other largest uh, customer are fleet operators. So a lot of fleet operators are looking for guarantees on uptime, right? For them, for a station to be inoperable or not operating as intended is costly. 
And we often see when stations are integrated with load management systems or demand response systems, it doesn't behave properly with OCPP. And so we've done a lot of work of uncovering those um, inefficiencies and being able to allow those fleet customers to have better uptime and to be able to go back to some of those load management and demand response companies and say like, hey, there's a problem here. We should look into this. For sure. You mentioned an acronym OCCP. Oh, Open Charge Point Protocol. It is the core protocol on allowing the station to essentially function. Got it. So we're going to go to another acronym, RAAS. Maybe talk about RAAS and and how customers should think about the, look, the ROI of, of engaging with, with ChargePoint. Yeah, so our, what we call RAS, razzle-dazzle, is um, reliability as a service. And it was so funny, like two years ago, we were sitting around because we were just like, in our industry, a lot of folks just, you know, if something breaks, then they send someone out. It's all, we call ad hoc services. And with ad hoc services, you can't really understand what happened to the station prior to you. They're really, and then it's very expensive for customers and it's not very efficient, right? This ideal that when something breaks, you send, send someone out and you keep doing that over and over and keep having to pay that cost. You can never predict how much O&L will cost you for a charging infrastructure. And so then I told my team, I was like, what if we just had a fixed price? You know, what if that price was low? And what if I said, I'll send a truck out no matter what. And, and I'll put a guarantee and say that I can ensure that I will, you know, still make margin at this very reasonable price with unlimited truck rolls. They thought I was crazy. It was a very uh, crucial time at Charger Help where every, we used to call it Charger Help as a service. Everybody thought I was crazy. But then we launched it with one customer. And you know what customers really liked? Predictable cost. Mm. I could tell them that no matter what, five years, this is your fixed cost for any truck roll. There's things that like when we figure out what the issue is. And so say, for instance, you have a station that is um, on a cellular network. And we it's very clear there's a strong cell phone signal there. And you need a hardwired station. I will no longer keep rolling a truck out for free because I told you what you need to do to solve the issue, right? But we will we will roll the truck. We will eat the cost until we fix that issue. And so really reliability as a service is, is peace of mind. It's knowing that you have what we call one, one throat to choke. <laughs> uh, where if there is an issue, you don't have to call a whole bunch of different people in order to solve it. We are your people. Um, and so we launched that uh, about a year and a half ago. And that has been our marquee product. We almost think four or five X that growth in just a year on that product. And so I've been very proud of it because it spoke to what the consumers wanted, which was predictable pricing and and not having to worry about these assets that they just knew that somebody would make sure that they're taken care of and fixed. Yeah, I recall when you first mentioned uh, Raz uh, to me back way back when. I loved it immediately, right? Anything as a service typically is a great idea, that, that predictability. What, what do you think, you, you mentioned that your team thought you were a little crazy for proposing this kind of this business model, basically. What was the source, perhaps, uh, of, 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 that, of, that, of that idea or the confidence, let's say, to push when most of your team said you were, you were crazy? I 
I just believe, I don't know. Like I, I'm like, I feel like I'm a, I myself am a very tough consumer. Like I think about like the things that I like, like I like ease. I like predictable pricing. I like not having to wait on hold a lot. Like I think being a millennial has like forced me to be like the pinnacle consumer. And so when I thought about the things that I liked as a consumer and tested them out with other customers and heard their feedback, I'm just like, and I believed in the data. I believed very wholeheartedly that if I collected enough information and enough data that I could understand the risk of the pricing and that I could create a business model out of it. I really, really believed that. So I think that's two. One, just trusting in myself and I think being a crazy consumer that likes to consume a lot of products and have a very high standard of the products that I, you know, spend money on. Um, and then two, really trusting in data and really understanding how to analyze data and, and understanding that you can get to the root cause of a lot of these issues if you focus solely on that. And that's all charger. The all thing we do is fix charging stations. And if you can't trust us to fix your charging station, if that's all that we're doing, we have a larger problem, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, predictive maintenance a little earlier. You've talked a lot about uh, this large data set. Maybe describe what your team looks like. Sure. So our team is it's fascinating because we have W-2 technicians, which when I first came out and raising venture, people was just like, well, this can't be a venture company. This doesn't make sense. But what we knew to be true is that this model of 1099 workers was not sustainable. Um, it did not allow you to control the quality of work. It did not allow you to invest in people properly and that there was a way to still have high margins and to have people. I wasn't in this mindset that all you can have is technology. And what we knew to be true was that everyone else went straight technology and that's why the data was wrong. That <laughs> you still needed humans in order to get the right data set. And so we have a field service organization, but then we also have engineers and then what we call um, our reliability team. So we have folks that are dedicated to understanding um, interoperability of different software and that they study the data and help us build out the platform as well. So it is a different kind of organization. You're meshing two worlds, you know, the blue collar worker, the white collar worker into this space in order to be able to take care of this very important asset. And I've read that you have, I think, a thousand, thousand plus technicians that are maybe not W2, a part of your old network, which you can pull to a, to a site. Is that the right number? So we train people. We train folks all across the U.S. And so, yes, we've trained over a thousand people. Uh, we only have 23 technicians. And because for us, we don't believe that charging infrastructure is a fully labor problem, right? It's technology and labor. And so we try to, you know, use labor very efficiently. But what we also wanted to do was to make sure that there was properly trained folks out in the industry, right? Our goal is to continue to be a technology company that utilizes labor in an efficient way, but we want to make sure that there's labor available for other folks that are well-trained based on the things that we've seen in the field. So yes, trained a ton of folks all across the U.S. to help the industry make sure that they have people that they can call on and then that they are very familiar with the charging you know, software in our, in our mobile application. So that way you can have the person and then you also know there's a technology solution that can be coupled with that person to help increase the reliability of, of the charging infrastructure. I'm with you. Let's stay on the technician topic for a second. I, I believe you have something really fun in the works with SAE International, yeah? Yeah. So just a few years ago when we started, I got connected to the folks over at SAE International. And prior to meeting them, 
I had randomly developed a curriculum. Not I used to be a banker prior to working in tech and um, researched, Googled how to write a curriculum, wrote down everything I knew about charging infrastructure, wrote a curriculum. And we were teaching people about charging, you know, how to fix charging stations. But at the end of that program, they would just get a completion certificate from Charger Help. And my co-founder, you know, she was really big on making sure that there was a more um, industry recognized way to identify someone that knew how to fix charging stations. And so when we met SAE, we had this curriculum and we were engaging with them to figure out if they could help bring together the industry to come up with an agreed upon certification. And so we worked alongside manufacturers from the industry, from ABP to Electrified America, even some car OEM folks. And these engineers, you know, they met every other week for almost nine months, taking apart our curriculum, adding into it, and coming up with agreed upon industry stamp body of knowledge. And then as of Q1 this year, there will be a certification. And so folks will be able to sit for this test that would be administered by SAE um, that, that is all based upon agreed upon standards. Never had been done before. It was the most fascinating and coolest experience of collaboration within the industry and was really, really proud of the partners, um, folks who are competitors, you know, getting together and making decisions on what is the right way to solve charger issues in the field. Um, yeah. It's fun to, it's fun to think about you all have helped train over a thousand technicians so far without that kind of codified body that this third party involved. It's fun to think about five years from now, 10 years from now, how many thousands, tens of thousands maybe of technicians could be trained to service these, uh, these chargers, huh? No, it's, it's, it's the coolest thing. And I think it's the best way to bring in blue collar workers into this space in an equitable way, right? Because these are good paying jobs and it allows folks to use their hands, but then also expose them to software. And so it's this beautiful world that folks get to sit in that maybe they maybe have not been exposed to before. Mm. Okay, so it'd be easy for listeners to think, man, Camille, she's just crushing it. Everything she touches is perfect at it. <laughs> and charge her help. Maybe, maybe describe a direction you were heading and you hit a wall. And, and how you had to pivot along the journey. No, absolutely. I mean, everything we've done thus far has been incredibly hard. I think none of it, it's so easy to talk about it right now, but no, everything <laughs> is hard. But one thing specifically, about a year or two into the org, in order for us to win a big contract, well, what would, it was, okay, person. So we would get, so we would apply to these contracts. We wouldn't get it. It would get awarded to a national organization we would then hear from that national organization later, they would outsource us to do the work. Mm. And so it just kept being like, people just kept eating, our, like snapping at our lunch. And it was just so annoying because we still would end up being, doing the work, but it's because we weren't national, we wouldn't become the prime. Mm. So I was like, well, we have to be national. And so we went all 50 states, geared up for all 50 states, and then had to significantly pull back because it wasn't enough work, right? And so now we're only dedicated to 17 states and I think some folks are starting to understand better now that even these people that claim to be national, they're not national. They have partners in other areas, right? And, and they're still outsourcing the work. And so I think we've just gotten better at being okay with that. And then also more companies are just familiar with us. So if they have enough business outside of our 17 states, 
we tell them we will stand up a workforce and we will work in that area, but we don't no longer position ourselves as a national organization. But that was a, a hard learning and an expensive learning. Yeah. Well, it's also a good reminder to folks that you, you, you don't need to be a slash, you can't be everything to everybody, right? You said earlier in the podcast, say, look, if, if we're not great at fixing EV chargers, we got a problem. That's all we do, right? right. That's all we do in 17 states. I think there's a, a real beauty to, to say, no, we, we don't do other things. We just do this. But guess what? Big markets, for sure. Absolutely, yes. Speaking of big markets, you all have raised uh, quite a bit of money. Maybe talk about what those conversations have been like to to get yeses from both you know financial and strategic investors believing in the future of Charger Health. I would I would believe it comes down to to three things. I mean, for me, I've always been very interested in our unit economics and understanding that understanding when it worked and understanding when it didn't work. Right, like I really understand our business and the industry very very well. I will I would. I would be very interested to find anyone that knows more about charging stations than me. I know it, okay, the unrealistic amount about charging stations uh, that makes me not that cool. <laughs> but I really, really understand the problem. I really understand the industry and I understand how to turn it into a business. And I've always been solely focused on that because for us, being successful as a business allows us to give more jobs, create economic opportunity allow people to have more opportunity, you know, opportunity in different spaces and realms. So that's always forefront for me. The second thing is, is that I am not always fundraising. I remember when I started, there was somebody said, oh, as a founder, you're always fundraising. Nope. I only fundraise for the four or five months when I'm going out to fundraise. The rest of the time, I'm building a business. <laughs> so I only take calls when I'm fundraising. I only invite certain folks into the round. I don't talk to every investor. And for investors to get access to data rooms or decks and things, I have to understand how they're going to add value. And I think because of that, it allows me to cut out the noise and make sure that I'm hyper-focused when I'm fundraising and that we know exactly what we're going to do next and what we have to accomplish, right, um, in order to, to complete that fundraise. And I think the third piece is that we only fundraise when we're going into extreme growth. We don't just raise capital to raise capital. I think that was the other thing that folks would tell me is like, Oh, always raise more than what you think. And I'm really, really big on just being capital efficient. I don't believe you just throw money on at things. You have to be smart and strate strategic about your growth. And I think you're seeing that from the industry now. It's not about just pouring gasoline on something <laughs> clearly, right? <laughs> um, it's a little bit, a little bit better than that. Um, and so I would say those are the three reasons why when we do get into the room you know, we've been able to get to a yes. And of course, timing, right? I think that's everything. Like you could do all three of those things and not be in the right time for your industry and, and not do well. But I think all three of those things mixed in with timing has allowed us to be successful. Well, clearly your passion for this, not quite nerdy topic any, anymore, uh, <laughs> comes, through, comes through for sure, even in audio on a podcast. But first, there's a brief message from our sponsors. Just kidding. We still don't take any sponsors. <laughs> but did you know that 100,000 plus CEOs belong to CEO peer groups? And if that makes you feel a little FOMO, 
And if you're a CEO or founder, then you're in luck. I have the privilege of leading North America's top peer group community for growth stage CEOs, founders, and investors in climate tech, clean energy, and sustainability. Today's members are creating billions of dollars of market value and millions of tons of greenhouse gas reductions. With our monthly group meetings, annual retreats, and one-on-one executive coaching calls, our members help each other, most importantly, help each other boost revenue, impact, capital raised, clarity, confidence, work-life balance, and team effectiveness. If this sounds interesting, please go to entrepreneursforimpact.com and join the waiting list today. Let's switch from Charger Help to, to Camille. Why don't you maybe describe something that you strongly believe in outside of business, but is influencing how you build team, mission, culture, et cetera, at Charger Help? Yeah, one the thing that I've always believed in is that we miss out on solutions when we don't include more people. And to expand on that, you know, I think about today, like the technology and the products that I use and that people use, you know, they've, for the most part, have all been dripped up by and created by one viewpoint. And so I always think about like, oh, what if there were more viewpoints, right? You build and you dream and you create from your vantage point and your experience. And so the more that we can allow for more people to participate in order to dream, build, create, just think about how many different products and things that we will have, like how more enriched our lives will be by the vantage point of other people's creations. And so that's something that drives what we do at Charger Hut, where we're very interested in expanding how we think about a team, expanding how we think about getting people involved, um, expanding how we think about who should have opportunity, right? A lot of the stuff that we talk about is like, okay, how can we include more? What is missing here? What are we not seeing here? And that's helped us build a very diverse and inclusive and extraordinary, you know, company. Right on. I love all that. It, it reminds me a little bit of uh, when I was in the green real estate world and green building was a thing. And it was not just tech or product, it was process as well. And there was this, this um, maybe this still is, this idea of a charrette process where you, you pull forward a lot of the design that would happen later on in a more linear fashion, you get more folks in the room that wouldn't normally even be in a design conversation or a build conversation. They're in that maintenance conversation, but get them all in the room much earlier on. Cost more is more friction, but to your point, you get better ideas that lead to you know life cycle cost, savings, improvement, performance, uh, et cetera. It also makes me think about, you know, college I was doing uh, research in the rainforest of Central America, incredible diversity. And I was growing up in small town Kentucky, where most of our forests were now, you know, cornfields and soybean fields. I mean, you, you got to feed cows something, but boy, oh boy, the difference in diversity, which one do I, you know, am I drawn to more? A pretty clear answer in terms of habitat, right? Yeah. That for sure. How about... Uh, if you're giving advice, Camille, to emerging professionals or maybe even your younger self, tell us uh, one or two pearls of wisdom, if you if you will. I would say the first big pearl of wisdom is that you always have time to rest. 
I think for a lot of my early career, and I'm very young, but yes, in the beginning. I'm very young. That's right. Young Camille's like, you know, when people would be like, oh, you need to take a break. I, I don't have time. Oh, you need to do that. I don't have time. And like, just got to a place like, no, you, you, you always have time to rest. Like you can create that time. And, and if you believe that you can't, that's a false narrative that you're telling yourself. And in fact, rest allows you to be more inquisitive, more on point. And it's a better all around human. I don't know if you ever met someone that is high strung and haven't slept in a while. You can tell. <laughs> like you need to go take a break. So no. that would be one. Um, and then I think the second piece is just how important it is to like build relationships and and, and just value relationships, whether with you know people who aren't family, but then also family and friends, and and how important it is to understand just how delicate the human life is. Because I think if you keep that at the forefront. You know, it helps you build better businesses. It helps you be a better human to other people and kinder to the environment. Mm. I love that you're talking about being a better human on a very much a business podcast. Um, one of the reasons we hang out so often, Camille. I love that. And the reason, and I just, I wanted to tap in on that because like the, the biggest thing to that I think that we're going to continue to realize is that when we're not better humans to one another, it's actually really, really expensive. Mm. We don't we don't think about the cost today, but that cost exists, right? If we're not kind to one another, whether it's in wages, right? That cost then goes on to the government. If we're not kind to the environment, that cost goes into human lives, right? Like by not being a good human to one another, it, it actually is bad business. Mm. It's like that cost will come back whether you think that you're succeeding now, that cost will come back to you. And I think we're seeing that now as a society, right? Mm. People that may have cut corners or haven't been good humans from an environmental or human capital standpoint, we're seeing the cost of that. And it falls now onto everyone. So mm. being a good human is good business. That should be a shirt. We should we should tag that. <laughs> Let's do it. No, just don't tell anybody. This is a telly one. Now I'm, I'm talking about. That's right. That's right. Well, I think I think to elaborate, if our if our timeline is long enough, or our ability to kind of see systems, secondary, tertiary effects, then it's 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 easier to see what you just described as true, versus linear, not systems thinking, et cetera. Well, it depends on where you're sitting, right? Because there's some people who see that this is true right now. It's true. Yeah. Your original point about there's always time to rest. I'm thinking back to one of our monthly CEO calls and this topic came up and you're like, you know what? I need some rest time. And I think during our break, you booked a vacation and came yeah. back. I booked it. We we're like, yes, you did. Nice. That's great. <laughs> I love good advice. I'm always here for that advice. I'm like, oh, and I'm like, oh, okay, that aligns. I'm going to take it. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to habits and routines. What are some of these that keep you healthy, sane, and focused? You mentioned, you know, kind of family and friends, a focus on relationships, clearly a big part of, I guess, what does it for you. But what what else, uh, Camille, habits and routines, daily, weekly, yearly, et cetera? Yeah. So my daily habit, um, I just learned this term 5 a.m. club. I didn't know this. So I guess it's a book or something. Somebody just mm-hmm. asked. But yeah, I, I'm up I'm really 435 and I... um. 
10 minute meditation, 10 minute yoga. Actually, now I'm down to a, I think I have a five minute yoga. Because at least, like, as long as I'm doing it. So I have a 10 minute meditation. I think I'm on a five minute yoga. I'm writing down three things I was grateful for the day before. And then I'm reading right now just about one to two pages out of a book. And I finally got into working out again. And then I'm doing about 15 to 30 minutes of working out every morning. Mm. Um, and that's, and then I drink coffee. I've been trying to lay off of that. But that is my every morning um, routine. And then during the holidays, I throw a series of events from October to New Year's that I just like love on my family and friends. And it's very exhausting. <laughs> um, it's so much, so much fun. What's an example of one of those events, Mel? Oh, goodness. We throw an annual Oktoberfest. And so one of my brothers um, is a photographer for breweries. And so he brings down different craft beers and we do a beer tasting. Um, I have a jumper. We also do a chili cook-off and we have a prizes. So that's one of them. We just did a um, gingerbread contest, gingerbread house making contest. So there's at least, yeah, I would say about seven or eight events from October to New Year's Day mm. uh, happened. But then I go on hibernation for the rest of the year and I don't talk or see anyone. But that's my balance. <laughs> balance, equanimity. There you go. I would say for, this is, well, we're not, I'm not sure when this podcast will get published, but we're recording it on the, uh, on the 3rd of January, which if, if folks hurt, well, hear your, your morning routine, they're going to feel either super motivated or already defeated. Yeah. <laughs> One of those two things. For a few years now. And I tell you, if I don't do it, I'm, oh, I'm a, not a great person. So like, it's really locked in. I would say if, if for listeners who, who love what you just talked about, that ritual, there's a book called Miracle Morning by this guy, Hal Elrod, which describes something similar. It's, I think it's six different chunks of 10 minutes each for a Miracle Morning. And I think the 5 a.m. club guy is Robin Sharma, maybe. Okay. Anyway, for listeners who want to kind of get, get inspired to be more like Camille. Ah. How about, speaking of books, what, tell, us, uh, tell us a few books or podcasts that you think listeners may find value in. So the book that I'm reading right now is, I'm actually looking at it, A Paradise Built in Hell, which is very interesting, but it's talking about different catastrophes that have happened in the U.S. and how everyday people essentially join together to take care of one another. So it talks about this really, the really big San Francisco earthquake and then the fire afterwards, but just, and I think that was like the 1920s or something like that, but just how afterwards people like student who, you know, had a, had a, you know, bakery then created like this thing where it's just giving out free food, but it wasn't government enticed or anything like that. It was just like in these crazy, like horrendous moments that like brought everyone to their knees, essentially. There was no economic disparity and just how people just like took care of one another is it, it was like somebody was doing this, this and that. They talk about what happened within Katrina and there was something similar to that. That sometimes people take care of one another better than the government was taking care of them. Um, um, and just like when we have like these very horrendous moments, moments as humans, you know, we tend to gear towards being more kind and, and more caring to one another. So that book has been great. And I read a lot of books with the pull. I was reading the book on happiness. That was not what was really great. And in podcasts, I like murder mysteries. <laughs> That's my guilty pleasure. 
<laughs> I won't tell anybody. It's yeah. so horrendous. Uh, I was like, this is very dark. And I, my favorite um, podcast, Murder Mystery, is I think it's called Oh Crime Junkie. It's like two best friends that talk about. Isn't is that morbid? That's weird. I, I mean, I, I would just say that you're not alone because when I when I explore like new podcasts to listen to, it seems like seven of the top ten are crime related. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm like who listens to these? Okay. Camille Camille does. <laughs> That has to say something about humans. I don't know. That's weird. I listen to them and then I'm like petrified all the time. So I don't know why I do that to myself. But I think because because founding founding and running a startup is just so easy. You need some stress in your life. Right. 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 Well, let's let's wrap here. Um, what's a call to action? A message? Um, who do you want to hear from? What's your kind of final? Final minute or so here, Camille, what you got? I mean, for me, I am super interested in learning about climate tech companies and founders that are building like consumer facing like products. I'm super interested in design. This is just like my guilty pleasure because I think in order for us to like address the climate crisis, we have to build more products and more services that are super hyper consumer focused and and really you know customer experience focused. So I'm really interested in connecting with founders like that, CEOs, companies to exchange ideals and be in connection with them, like things that are really help focus on design. I'm really interested in connecting with folks like that this year. Mm. Well, if if that describes anyone listening. A CEO of a company, as Camille just described, and your, you know, Series A-ish and beyond. Guess what? I know a great CEO peer group where you can come hang out with Camille and I and a few dozen other folks. Anyway, dot, 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 entrepreneurs for impact. Anyway, this is not a commercial. Camille, it's awesome to record one of our conversations and share the awesome work you guys are doing at Charger Health. We need you all to succeed. No pressure. Anyway. Awesome to talk about your all's uh, razzle-dazzle, your Raz solution growing 4 to 5x and excited to hear what's next. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all, y'all. Take care.